This week, Progressive Spirit meets the Walking Dead. We don't all have to kill, but people are going to stay here. They do have to accept it. We've been talking about the Walking Dead, and although the ratings were down some this season, the seventh season, uh, for the four previous seasons, it was the most watched show in the world among um, adults 19 to 49. And so in, in a very real sense, in all the demographic senses that matter, the most popular TV narrative on the planet is this story about the zombie apocalypse and what people do in regard to it. Professor Greg Garrett of Baylor University discusses why we love killing zombies. His book is Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. This is how we survive. Everyone's made it this far. We've all done the worst kinds of things just to stay alive. We do what we need to do, and then we get to live. You're not ready, but you have to be. Right now, you have to be. We don't shy from it. We live. We tell ourselves that we are the walking dead. The walking dead, the night of the living dead, Shaun of the dead, Z Nation. We can't seem to get enough of the zombies. So what? is that about? So we are in this, I think, this post 9-11 reality where we are surrounded by all of these things that are scary to us. And those things kind of shift depending on what it is in the news at the moment. And with our 24-7 news cycles, we've got new things to be afraid of, it seems like, almost every second. But um, in the same sort of way that we could say that after 9-11, we could be afraid of uh, terrorism. You know, today we could say, okay, I'm afraid of terrorism, I'm afraid of pandemics, I'm afraid of global unrest, uh, I'm afraid of the people that are in the cabinet, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. And uh, so some of the people who have written very intelligent uh, kind of critiques of the zombie phenomenon have basically just said, you know, it's whatever we're afraid of at this given moment, and these fears just keep washing over us like waves of zombies. And that's kind of what life feels like for us at the, at the current moment. Greg Garrett is professor of English at Baylor University, where he teaches classes in fiction and screenwriting, literature, film, and popular culture, and theology. The author or co-author of 20 books on fiction, nonfiction, and memoir, Garrett, according to the BBC, is one of America's leading voices on religion and culture. He's the author of Living with the Living Dead, the wisdom of the zombie apocalypse. He's with me via Skype from Austin, Texas. Welcome, Professor Garrett, to Progressive Spirit. Oh, thank you so much, John. Now, you've written a book uh, on the zombie apocalypse and the zombie genre, not because uh, you're a big fan of zombie films, but, but, but because you see the rise of the zombies in film and literature as a reflection of our increasing anxieties. This is a recurring phenomenon, correct? In times of cultural fear, the zombies rise? Yeah, that's exactly what I discovered in the writing of this book. And uh, you're right. I started um, not from the sort of uh, fan aspect that has actually driven some of the other books that I've written on U2 or on um, comics, but just because I was looking at this phenomenon and people kept asking me what's going on with this because I'm supposed to be some sort of intelligent uh, commentator on on culture, and um, I didn't have an answer for them. And what I discovered in the course of the two or three years that I spent doing research 
is that uh, at least as far back as the Middle Ages and probably further than that, we can find these sort of instances when people feel like they're at this pressure point, this uh, time when they're surrounded by fears and anxieties, and the dead seem to get up and walk around in literature and culture. And so we see that in the Middle Ages in this uh, phenomenon called the dance macabre, which is uh, in art and in literature a thing where death with a capital D uh, gets up and sort of interacts with uh, human beings in every station from the Pope all the way down to the lowliest peasant. And a lot of those images, if you take a look at wood cuttings or frescoes, actually look very similar to the images that we have of zombies. Uh, one of the illustrations from the book is actually the um, bronze statue of death from the Cemetery of the Innocents in Paris, where one of the most famous uh, dance macabre uh, artworks was uh, before the cemetery was destroyed. And uh, when you see that statue in the Louvre today, it, it really does sort of look like something that you would see on The Walking Dead or uh, any of those kind of uh, contemporary iterations of the, the zombie myth that we're so fond of. And uh, as you said, it's got, it started in the Middle Ages, but it also had a big um, impression at World War I. How, how did uh, the anxiety around World War I and the death there also uh, lead into the, the Walking Dead? Well, you can see it in a lot of the poetry, and uh, World War I is... One of those uh, wars in recent years that we have uh, an incredible amount of poetry, much of it from the trenches, from uh, officers, soldiers, nurses, who were in the middle of no man's land and saw this incredible devastation. And uh, so in some of the images of, of death and the blasted landscape, we've got that kind of uh, recurring figure of death. And even in some of the art, there is this marvelous and really very creepy um, version of the dance macabre, a woodcut by uh, a, a woodcutting or an etching series by the uh, British soldier and artist Percy Delph Smith. And uh, it's clearly drawing on the medieval tradition, all of these different kinds of uh, embodiments of the living dead. But in many of these images, they're even more chilling because uh, they've been updated to a 20th century setting. Uh, the one, the image that we have in the book is actually uh, a an etching called Death Odd, A-W-E-D, in which the embodiment of death, a walking corpse, uh, takes a look at a blasted landscape and this pair of boots that uh, until just seconds before were occupied by a human being. And uh, one of the ways that uh, Percy Delph Smith is kind of taking this earlier tradition and, and making some social commentary go to work is to say, well, even death is kind of amazed at the the ridiculous uh, amount of destruction that we've unleashed. I, I remember taking a, a literature course. I think we we're reading something from Thomas Hardy, and it was about uh, the the Judgment Day, and the dead were in their graves, and oh, it's Judgment Day because they heard all these explosions, and they're trying to find mm -hmm. their bones and whatever. But it really, it's it's war, and it's wo it's woken up the dead. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's it's exactly it, and. Um, World War I and the Middle Ages uh, is not a connection I would immediately have made, but Barbara Tuchman, the great uh, historian who has written on both of those periods, talked about the anxieties that were present at both of those times and how sort of identical they were. Um, war and uh, civil unrest and uh, pandemic. You may remember that in 1918 there was this uh, flu epidemic that, uh, that uh, circled the war and actually killed more people in America than the war did. I mean, the, the flu epidemic was, the influenza epidemic was a more uh, memorable thing for most of us uh, in the States than, than the actual war itself. And uh, so that was what kind of sparked the idea for me. I'm not sure that anybody else has ever noticed this. Um, but then, you know, most people are not looking for zombies, so... <laughs> Right. Now, uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking with Greg Garrett. He's the author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. Uh, you come at this as uh, a literary critic and a cultural critic and, and a theologian. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your method and approach to this zombie genre in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of writing about the intersection between faith and religion and the culture. And part of it comes out of my own experience as somebody who was, for many years, not uh, attached to any kind of organized religion, but very well, I mean, very much aware of my need for some kind of spirituality and confirmation in that spirituality. And um, works of popular culture, films and books and comics and music, 
were all a, a really big part of my, my journey in terms of my own spirituality. And so I knew from just a very practical sense that there is some kind of, of comfort and meaning that we find in a lot of these works. And we don't often you know, think about it consciously. You know, what is it that I'm learning from The Dark Knight? What is it that I'm learning uh, from this song by U2? But there is something that speaks to us. And, you know, in that, uh, that seeking place that Augustine identifies in the Confessions, you know, it, it, um, it fills some sort of spiritual and emotional need for us. And so I am very interested in exploring the spiritual and ethical questions that are brought up in our most popular narratives and our most popular artifacts. Uh, because one of the things that intrigues me as a cultural critic is that um, when something is universal, when you know 400 plus million copies of Harry Potter novels have been sold, you know something about those stories is speaking in a really powerful way to people in that, that way that we were, were talking about just a second ago. And what what are those themes? What are those stories? And how are they a, a, attached to people's lives? And then the last thing for me that's interesting, in addition to sort of saying, I'm going to look at these particular texts and read them for meaning. Uh, I'm going to think about their relationship to the larger culture. Um, a few years ago, uh, about 10 plus actually now, I not only became sort of a serious person of faith again, but I uh, went to Episcopal Seminary uh, in preparation possibly for the Episcopal priesthood. And uh, while there, during my three years of full-time study, I, I took the study of theology very seriously. And um, now I sort of bring that lens as well as the cultural lens and the, lit the literary lens to sort of ask um, what sort of theological and, and spiritual themes are being explored in these stories? How do they relate, if at all, to uh, the teachings of our wisdom traditions? Um, in, in what ways can we make connections? In what ways do these stories sort of stand at odds to the teachings that people receive from their traditions? And that's been the, maybe the most interesting part of my journey as a writer uh, over the last 10 years is to begin to explore the kind of working theologies that people create uh, through both the stories they consume from the culture and whatever received uh, faith tradition they might be uh, a part of. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily think uh, a zombie film uh, has a spiritual element to it. But, you know, I had a New Testament scholar on the show uh, a few months ago, and we were talking about now, the early Jesus movement in the Q community, uh, uh, mm -hmm. for those catching up, you know, the hypothetical source for uh, uh, Common and Luke and Matthew. Well, oh, it, right. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's a time of chaos, apocalypse, and Jesus and his disciples would tour around and they'd trade uh, healing and teaching for food and lodging. And, and I'd just been watching The Walking Dead uh, before I had this interview, and I thought the Q <laughs> community is kind of like The Walking Dead. You have to learn who to trust, how to barter a new ethical system. And my guest hadn't seen The Walking Dead, but it made me wonder if, if there was more to this show than meets the eye. And, and you uh, make some point uh, connections uh, between the Jesus literature and the zombie apocalypse. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just did uh, an interview shortly before our show with uh, a Baptist media outlet. And uh, that interviewer was asking me a sort of practical question. You know, what what should pastors and, and church leaders do with this stuff? I mean, is there anything there for their sermons and homilies? Is there any there for anything there for the teaching element that they do? And that actually is probably the biggest part of my book, uh, because although I am interested in zombies and what they symbolize, that's maybe 20% of what I've chosen to write about. Because early on, I tell this story about uh, doing an interview with Angela Kang the writer and executive producer of The Walking Dead. And uh, in that conversation, what emerged from that is what I had sort of been suspecting all along, which was that zombie stories are not actually about zombies. Um, zombies are the wallpaper, if you will, uh, in the same way that in the Harry Potter universe, you know, magic wands and, and uh, you know, uh, teleportation are, are part of the wallpaper. But in, in every great story, the human characters are the things that matter. And uh, she said something that was so provocative for me that day because she said, you know, it's not about the zombies. It's, it's what people are willing to do to survive when they perceive themselves to be in danger. 
And that's where this whole sort of post 9-11 thesis of this book kind of came into place. The idea that not only do we have this incredible uptick in movies and TV and and material culture and and cultural events involving zombies after 9-11, but this idea that it's very clearly reflecting the unease, the anxiety of our culture and the sort of difficult ethical questions that come up when we are afraid. What are we willing to do to protect ourselves? What are we willing to do to protect our families? And what sort of cost will those decisions have for us? And so what I think is central in terms of the Christian teachings, um, I talk a lot about the uh, Christian ethicist Scott Bader Say, uh, who has written a really wonderful book about uh, post 9-11 ethics called uh, Following Jesus in a Time of Fear. And uh, it's a very sort of progressive book. I think that uh, the majority of your listeners would would like it because it's very critical of many of the choices that we made um, following 9-11 to sort of preemptively destroy the things that make us afraid, as you know, when we saw how successful that was. But his, um, his primary thesis, which I've adopted for this book, because I think it's so useful when we think about the, the zombie apocalypse stories, is do characters live out of a, a, a sort of stance of fear and defensiveness, or do they live out of a stance of compassion and generosity? And in uh, stories like The Road, uh, the Cormac McCarthy novel, the Pulitzer Prize winner that was then later made into the the movie, the father, who is one of the two main characters in that story, chooses fear every time. I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep you safe. We're going to turn down every request for help. We're going to walk on down the road and everybody else is going to have to fend for themselves. And then the child, the son, Um, keeps asking these questions. It's like, Dad, you always say that we are the good people. We're the ones carrying the light. And when he gets towards the end of the story, the the son sort of asks his father straight out, if we're the good people, why don't we ever do a good thing? Why don't we ever help anybody else? And uh, it sort of brought into stark relief that whole question from the Jesus tradition. Um. One of the things that I love about the teachings of the tradition as I've come to understand them is that we live uh, out a sort of gospel of uh, richness and and wealth instead of a gospel of scarcity. And, um, you know, the feeding miracles in the gospels are one of the sort of manifestations of that theological idea that there is so much more available to us that we don't have to grasp for the tiny little scraps of things that we're trying so desperately to hold on to. Um, that if we were only able to live into the sort of kingdom teachings of Jesus and uh, those others on the way, that we would discover this um, this idea that love and generosity and compassion get repaid um, instead of uh, taken advantage of. And of course, in zombie stories, that's not always true. Uh, there are a bunch of characters in The Walking Dead who live in this sort of walled community of Alexandria. And uh, not too long ago, one of the the characters, Glenn, um, of blessed memory, talked to uh, some of these people and said, you shouldn't even be alive. (laughs) You know, you don't have any skills. You're so trusting. You you don't have, you know, the the things that it takes to stay alive in this world full of danger. And yet at the same time, when you give up those things, there seems to be such a powerful soul cost to it um, that there's. I think a whole lot of really applicable stuff there when we think about uh, some ways to read The Walking Dead and some of these other zombie stories using that lens of, of New Testament theology. Greg Garrett, my guest, is the author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. And for, for anyone out there who might not have seen a, a zombie film, can you give us a, a basic on the zombie apocalypse and, and, and why zombies and why now? Okay. Um, the sort of quick, you know... Um, teaching on that would be that the zombie film dates back to 1968 when George Romero made a movie called Night of the Living Dead. And going back to our kind of earlier thesis about uh, crisis points in human history and the dead getting up and walking around, 1968, of course, is one of those times in American history. Uh, you know, terrible assassinations, uh, divisive war, uh, cultural and, and political unrest, I mean, all sorts of things. Um, 
I mean, I think we can sort of attach zombies to this, you know, kind of generic hell in a handbasket, you know, as in we are going to hell in a handbasket kind of view of the world. And so 1968 is the first time we see that model of uh, the dead being reanimated and getting up and walking around as we understand them in our zombie films now. Although, as we also said, we've got other examples of uh, things like this in art and culture from early on. But the apocalypse thing that's attached to this is the idea that these zombies eat human beings, they attack them, um, they convert them either in death or upon their attack. Uh, into creatures like themselves. And so it's like this sort of wave of um, death washing across the world, and if they're successful, leaving nothing behind uh, but The Walking Dead. And so George Romero made a couple of other films, but uh, the, the genre sort of goes into decline until right after 9-11, when a movie called 28 Days Later, which is a, a, you know, an independent uh, zombie film from England, is released a month after the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And uh, it touches a nerve. And a wave of zombie films follows. And uh, then we've been talking about The Walking Dead. And although the ratings were down some this season, the seventh season, uh, for the four previous seasons, it was the most watched show in the world among um, adults 19 to 49. And so in, in a very real sense, in all the demographic senses that matter, the most popular TV narrative on the planet is this story about the zombie apocalypse and what people do in regard to it. And then we are getting ready to start uh, a new season of Game of Thrones. And uh, many people think that it's largely a movie about palace intrigue or about war or about sexual shenanigans because uh, there's a whole lot of skin on um, the show. But uh, a couple of times every season, they will stop and remind you, hey, what this show is really about is The Walking Dead are about to overrun the world. And um, this season and next season, which are the final two seasons of Game of Thrones, uh, look as though that they're going to be largely focused on that battle between the living and the dead. And uh, so we are in this, I think, this post 9-11 reality where we are surrounded by all of these things that are scary to us. And those things kind of shift depending on what it is it's in the news at the moment. And with our 24-7 news cycles, we've got new things to be afraid of, it seems like, almost every second. But um, in the same sort of way that we could say that at, after 9-11, we could be afraid of uh, terrorism. You know, today we could say, okay, I'm afraid of terrorism, I'm afraid of pandemics, I'm afraid of global unrest, uh, I'm afraid of the people that are in the cabinet, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. And uh, so some of the people who have written very intelligent uh, kind of critiques of the zombie phenomenon have basically just said, you know, it's whatever we're afraid of at this given moment. And these fears just keep washing over us like waves of zombies. And that's kind of what life feels like for us at the at the current moment. Because we're always being uh, the zombies, as you mentioned, uh, they are relentless <laughs> and in the idea they never give up. And you talked about that. That's kind of what humans do, too. But and that's actually what makes human beings alive ones similar to the zombies is that both are relentless. They keep coming at you and uh, you have to uh, beat them over the head. And is, is that the cathartic yeah. part of, um, of of the zombie literature uh, is that you kind of put the uh, I think I think you mentioned this. Do you you. Um, put the fears onto this zombie and then you whack it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, screenwriter who wrote Zombieland, which is one of my favorite zombie films. And I talk about it at length in the book says that that for him was a great thing. You can take whatever it is you're afraid of and hit it over the head. And uh, there's also a, an epigraph for one of the chapters that uh, my son said a couple of years ago. Uh, he said, sometimes you just want to get together with your friends and kill some zombies. And <laughs> I had, I had thought of, and, you know, parents, grandparents, all of you who sort of look at your your gentle children who become these monster killing machines. Um, I had had observed that with a sort of degree of, of fear and trepidation. It's like, oh, what's going to happen? But then, you know, he kind of went on being completely well adjusted. And it, it occurred to me that this might just be what he needs to do. He, he might need to get on the online with friends from around the world and and knock these things over the head, so to speak. And uh, I, I think that that actually is one of the kind of cathartic things about it. These, in, in many of the, the representations, they're not particularly fast, they're not intelligent, 
you know, they can be outsmarted. Uh, one of the sort of scary things that came post 9-11 is the running zombie, which came from 28 days later and 28 weeks late, late, later and uh, that we saw in the uh, World War Z adaptation. Because it's bad enough that they don't stop and there's lots of them and that if they get you, you become one of them. But when they're faster than you, then all of a sudden your nightmares just sort of get ramped up to the next level. <laughs> you know, I'd like to talk uh, about the politics of the zombie genre. Uh, how, uh, say, uh, the government is depicted in these films and books. Helpful, incompetent, evil? You know, typically the government is either incompetent or evil. Um, in some of these stories, the genesis of the zombie apocalypse is that um, the government has done something or science has done something. You know, that's sort of that familiar, uh, you know, we, we tread, you know, in God's domain kind of uh, uh, meme. Mm -hmm. But in some of the Romero films particularly, there's this sense that uh, – Government is at best, um, you know, sort of ineffectual and at worst kind of actively evil because it's it's made up of human beings who are grasping and acquisitive and who who seek power and want to rise to their highest level. Um, the only place I can think of sort of at the top of my head where that's not true is maybe at the end of Shaun of the Dead, which is one of my favorite uh, zombie oh, yeah. romantic comedies, uh, a zom rom com. And um, there, these uh, troops kind of come rolling in in these huge trucks and, and put down uh, the, the localized zombie uh, invasion. And we go, hey, that was great. <laughs> Where were you before? But yes, that was great. But um, I think in a lot of these films, there is this uh, sort of innate suspicion of uh, government, you know, either that it allowed this to happen or even caused it to happen in some of the stories. And um, so that is that is, I think, a worrisome thing about a lot of these stories. Um, there's also a lot of worry in some of these uh, about the human institutions of government and why people become leaders that I think we could probably carry over to some of our contemporary conversations about politics. Yeah. Uh, when we look at The Walking Dead, we've got a, a lot of the people um, who are the most compelling leaders in that post uh, zombie world are, you know, basically strong men. Um, they gather people around them. They dominate them by fear and brutality. And um, we go, wow, is that really what the human community is supposed to be about? And uh, so I, I think that probably there's a lot of relevance there for, you know, kind of our current, uh, our current uh, way of uh, thinking that we're going to make our way in the world. I'm speaking with Greg Garrett, author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. More after the break, but first I want to share something from my blog, shuckandjive.xyz, that I wrote, oh, about seven years ago. And actually it was a quote from Michael Rupert. Michael Rupert um, is a truth teller, was a truth teller. Uh, he took his life a few years ago, but not before exposing a lot of the lies that are the foundation for our nation. And he wrote a book called Confronting Collapse, The Crisis of Energy and Money in a Post-Peak Oil World. And he's featured in the film based on his book called Collapse. And this is from Michael Rupert, his thoughts on zombies. Zombie. A moving but brain-dead and soul-dead creature in a human body who functions on the biological, moral, spiritual, and intellectual precept that everything in existence is there for its consumption and destruction, without awareness or consciousness of the ramifications on any other life forms, including other zombies. Zombies are living dead. The only proven recourse for living humans is to avoid contact with zombies as much as possible. Zombies automatically and unquestionably believe in the principle of infinite growth and are incapable of conceptualizing other life paradigms. When faced with shortages of anything, zombies frequently revert to cannibalism by eating the lives of other humans to satisfy their insatiable hunger and arrogant and belligerent stupidity. Zombies prefer to eat the living first, thus forcing them to become zombies. 
Zombies cannot hear and do not listen to simple scientific laws or do simple arithmetic. Zombies are known for their ability to ask extremely stupid questions and try and engage in futile arguments with the living, thus paralyzing or retarding useful debate and discussion. Zombies are closely related to vampires in that they exist to suck life and energy out of anything that has life and energy. The zombie paradigm is one of infinite growth in that zombies always need to create more zombies. Zombies can revert back to living status, but this usually happens only when zombies are faced with imminent death. CollapseNet will always welcome former zombies who have become human again. Current zombies are not welcome here. That's Michael Rupert from the website CollapseNet, the late Michael Rupert, who I miss. After the break, we continue our conversation with Greg Garrett, author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. This is Progressive Spirit. Audio from The Walking Dead. Starting right now, we have to live in the real world. We have to control who lives here. If you don't fight, you die. They're screwing with the wrong people. Look, I fought him before. And after, we took in... His old friends, they've become leaders in what we have here. Now you put down your weapons, walk through those gates. You're one of us. The wall's gonna hold together. Can you? We don't all have to kill. But people are gonna stay here. They do have to accept it. told us to get ready to fight. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shack. We continue our conversation with Greg Garrett, author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. The best, uh, our government was obviously either incompetent or, I mean, there's a lot of suspicion about it, just, just secretive. And, uh, and now uh, going out and doing first strikes and talking about enhanced interrogation techniques, if that's a possible right. moral thing. And uh, there's a sense in which perhaps the zombie films are a, are a commentary uh, on, on that development, too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, one of the things that I talk about at length in the ethics chapter is I, I try to make some of those explicit post 9-11 connections with some of the things like enhanced interrogation um, that uh, were done after 9-11 and which were accepted by a lot of people, uh, including a lot of uh, American Christians, because for them in their sort of state of fear, it seemed like, well, better this you know, then, then something happened to my family. And, uh, there's this line from Zombieland, the Emma Stone character in uh, that movie is looking out for her little sister. And, uh, basically what she says to the other characters in the movie is better, you know, better you should trust me than we trust you. Um, you know, and I think there is this sort of sense that, um, you know, we'll, we'll take these pragmatic approaches to managing our fear because it makes us in some way feel better, uh, even if it's against the sort of ethical teachings that we espouse or even the religious teachings. For me, the most disturbing thing, and I talk about this in the book, 
was that uh, poll, I think, from the Pew Institute that found that um, among the people most supportive of torture uh, following 9-11 were evangelical Christians. Hmm. Um, and that, for me, was incredibly disturbing. And although I don't, you know, uh, hold out a membership in that uh, group anymore, um, many of my friends and family, many of the people that I love most are people who are evangelical Christians. And I think of them as, as good people, and I think of them uh, as people who are devout, and, and although their expression of faith is different than my expression, it is really hard for me to reconcile that with the teachings of Jesus. Well, that's, um, th- yeah, there's certainly a strand within religion that some of it that is very authoritarian, and you just need an authority uh, to control and to and to lead, and uh, if that in- involves the myth of redemptive violence, then so be it. Um, I, 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 you know, there's a, I'm speaking with Greg Garrett, a fascinating conversation we're having about living with the living dead, uh, the wisdom of the zombie apocalypse. Uh, going back to literature th- uh, genres again, is there a distinction mm-hmm. between the zombie apocalypse genre, uh, or the alien genre, right? They're all coming to get us, mm-hmm. uh, Independence Day, uh, and then the superhero stuff that we're also seeing, and then dystopian uh, genres in general. Uh, Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood's Handma- Handmaid's Tale is now a television show. It's become popular again. Uh, what's the connection? What might be the distinction regarding zombies in this? Well, I think there is a lot of connection between those. I, I make the suggestion in the book that disaster movies, which certainly includes our end of the world and alien invasion things, uh, war movies and, and zombie stories are all about characters and extremists. And they all are typically uh, about human characters that are divorced from the usual mores and, and institutions. Uh, so either governments have fallen or in war stories, um, they are operating by a different set of rules because, I mean, as you know, my, my father, for example, went off to basic training and he had been raised in the Assembly of God Church and, and taught not to kill. And then as soon as he got into that structure, he was taught, well, you have to kill, but you've got to kill only these people. And um, so... I think all of those stories in some sense, and here I'm setting aside the dystopian things for just a second, but all of these these stories of larger disaster, whether it's war or alien invasion or zombie apocalypse or uh, earthquake or you know tsunami, in some way bring us back to Angela Kang's comments about how stories about human beings in extremists and uh, sort of divorced from their typical moral underpinnings are really interesting. You know, what, what are people willing to do? What will they, you know, what acts will they take? You know, so it's the end of the world. You know, what will you do to protect your family? Will you be generous to your neighbor? Will you lock the door against your neighbor? I mean, all of those uh, kinds of stories ask similar questions about what human beings will do when they face fear and risk. Um, the dystopian stories, I think, are a little bit separate because there's still some kind of institutional underpinning. Um, but often they're a result of some kind of catastrophe or disaster. And I think about some of these uh, strong men and cultures that we were talking about in The Walking Dead as dystopian societies. Like, I, I don't want to live in a culture ruled, ruled by a guy with a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Huh. Um, that, you know, whatever that culture looks like is the opposite of the culture I want to be a part of. And um, so I think sometimes in these dystopian stories, we're seeing kind of the ultimate results of those human choices. Um, we're going to band together around these rules within these walls. And uh, so, for example, in The Handmaid's Tale, where, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what do you call it, the uh, rates of birth have declined so greatly that, you know, we need surrogate mothers uh, to bear the children of the, the wealthy and powerful. Um, what, I mean, what kind of society comes into being around those rules and regulations? Um, I mean, typically it's only one where they sense that the option is even worse. You know, so it's, it's if you're a part of Negan's group in The Walking Dead, Maybe you're attracted to power, but maybe you're just also so scared to death of what's outside the walls that, you know, that looks like 
hideous as it might be, a, a better alternative and a better opportunity for you and the people you love. <laughs> it sounds like uh, uh, the Israelites, right? We'd rather go back to Egypt than face <sighs> what we have in the promised land. <laughs> <laughs> There's a character in the in the Walking Dead, and I can't remember his name, but this, but it really bothered me because I agreed with him. But then I thought, I don't know if he can do it. He's the guy who decides to be nonviolent. I mean, all all the yeah. way through, right? And yeah, and I'm you. thinking, gosh, he's getting he's just constantly getting pushed at the level where even nonviolence might be unethical. I mean, that was a pretty powerful, I thought, uh, imagery of, of how far do we really take that ideal uh, in the uh, zombie apocalypse. Yeah, and I, I love that character. That's Morgan, who was, I think, the first uh, human that uh, Rick met after the zombie apocalypse, after he sort of escaped from the hospital where he'd been in a coma. And Morgan has been wrestling all through this seventh season with his, you know, his ideal of nonviolence. And I talk about this some in the book because uh, I also write novels and I teach screenwriting. And I know that pacifism is not a particularly interesting dramatic tool. Um, and, you know, there is there is only so far in a, in a world where people are trying to eat you, um, where you can sort of reason with them and ask if they share your moral vision. Um, and so I, that's one of the things that maybe we sort of wrestle with. But I, I agree with you that it really is nice to have somebody asking those hard ethical questions. Um, because I do feel like that there is a soul, S-O-U-L, cost to the violence that gets employed in the zombie apocalypse and whether or not it's in self-defense. Uh, one of the things that I read for the book was from a psychologist who said, you know, basically everybody in the zombie apocalypse is going to be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, whether whether you are killing zombies or you're killing human beings who are trying to kill you and your tribe, um, that that level of violence, whether you're the agent of it or simply exposed to it, is going to be soul deadening. And, um, you know, you're going to have uh, lots of suicides and lots of people in a trance state. And just to at least hold out the possibility of nonviolence, even though it's not a very practical one in an action story, is... I think a really nice step. I'm glad to see that they've taken it as frustrating as uh, you're right. It can sometimes be to, to see it acted out. I'm speaking with Greg Garrett, author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse, and, and want to talk about the, a final question really here, uh, the wisdom part of that. Has this zombie genre kind of taken on a, a role or part of role of, of religion or scripture? Yeah, I think it absolutely has. And this is where we come back to the kind of coming together of all the three things that interest me, the, you know, the literary reading and the cultural criticism and the theology and philosophy stuff. Um, when I was giving some lectures on my last book, which was a book about stories of the afterlife, um, there were audience members in Cambridge, England, and in Paris who, I mean, independently, hundreds of miles apart from each other, came up to me and asked me if I was familiar with this book by the atheist philosopher uh, Alain de Baton, uh, The Atheist Guide to Religion. And uh, in that book, which is a really fine book, um, de Baton's thesis is that everybody needs the things that religion gives people, um, including atheists. And while they're not interested maybe in the transcendental or uh, you know uh, supernatural parts of that, you know, they need community, they need... Uh, ritual. They need the sense that they are part of something larger than themselves, that they're called to compassion and heroism. Um, and so each of these audience members, after referencing that book, said, is it possible that these zombie stories are teaching people some of these things and, and engaging them in some of the needs that people have that are satisfied by religion? And I said, of course. I mean, absolutely. Because that has been my experience of great works of literature and pop culture that they, you know, they call us to community. They call us to be our best selves. They encourage us to be people of compassion and grace. And I think what happens in these zombie, zombie stories particularly, and I wrote about uh, these things at length, um, I think that they really magnify for us the power of community, the necessity of community. And uh, in many of the zombie stories, in a practical sense, the difference between living and dying is whether you have somebody to to check your six, you know, to to watch your back. But it it reminds us of the the stuff from uh, Paul's teachings on the body of Christ, 
And uh, to make the Jesus connection here, it really is about not just the practical, you know, you need somebody to stand watch between two and four in the morning, but you also need somebody who will push back against your, your worst uh, instincts and excesses and someone who will celebrate uh, with you and, and encourage you and love you. Um, all of the things that we think of as being sort of central to Christian teaching. And uh, I talk in the book about uh, Desmond Tutu's teachings um, about community, because they are so sort of anti-Western. And in the West, we still have this kind of pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps individualism. But um, this idea that community is essential for us is, is something that I see played out in a lot of these zombie stories. And The Walking Dead is really a great example of that. Um, I mean, Rick needs Michonne, who needs Daryl, who needs Carol. Um, I mean, all of these people are, they are um, in some sense better because of they are, they're rubbing against these people uh, who are a part of their community. So I, I think that that call to community is a really big thing in, in the zombie story. And then we've talked a lot about ethics, and I think what the zombie story foregrounds for us is the necessity of making good moral choices and making choices not out of our fear, which is always a bad place to make decisions, you know, personally, politically, however you want to think about it. You know, the worst decisions that I've made in my life have been out of fear. Um, but if we can make them out of the, the places that our wisdom teachings call us to, you know, whether we're Buddhists or observant Jews or Muslims or Christians or whatever, um, fear is not the thing that we're called to, you know, uh, in, in all of our teachings, compassion is a core teaching and to be able to make decisions out of that as challenging as it is. You know, we were talking about Morgan earlier, how hard is it to be a pacifist in a world where people are trying to kill you and things are trying to eat you. And at the same time, how cool is it that you can actually be true to your moral vision that says, I'm going to be diminished um, if, I, if I take up arms and defend myself? Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of really powerful moral teachings in this that help this be a meaning-making thing for people in this really uh, anxious time. So uh, then a final question. Is there, uh, as you look at it, uh, kind of a the big scope overall uh shortcomings um with our zombie fascination mm. well i had a really good conversation with playboy this week and um <laughs> that interviewer was pushing me hard i mean i think he wanted me to give a theological ruling on whether i thought it was okay to kill zombies or not and uh, so we kind of walked through, you know, whether zombies have a soul, uh, whether they're the same kind of ramifications for killing zombies. And what it makes me think about is all those films that are rated PG for fantasy violence. Um, and in those films, you know, you have shadows or robots or, you know, some kind of non-human construct that the heroes or superheroes can take apart without we think that kind of moral cost to it. Um, and, and what this interviewer from Playboy was encouraging me to think about is, you know, is it really a good thing or a bad thing to kill zombies? And so I think one of the things that for me still I wrestle with is this is a story in which violence is a central part of telling the story. And you were talking earlier about the myth of redemptive violence. Yeah. Um, if it's, if it's only confined to the zombies, I can sort of rationalize it dramatically and maybe theologically. Because again, we say these are, these are creatures that if they were human once, no longer are human. And so I'm willing to put up an asterisk by them. But I'm also, as much as I like action and as much as I like uh, the different genres in which violent um, action is a central part of the storyline... I'd have to say that that's the thing I'm most disturbed about as well. Um, that, you know, this is, this is a story that at least encourages you to think that a machete or um, a baseball bat is the solution to many problems. Um, but I think we become so fixated on 
the violent, you know, sort of action that we can kind of step away from the ethical questions that we've been talking about all this time. You know, is it, is it really a good thing to live in fear? And um, are there maybe some other solutions that we're having a hard time thinking of because we're just so freaking scared? Yeah. Greg Garrett, author of Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse, uh, a great book and uh, makes us rethink all those zombie movies. And uh, appreciate it, uh, uh, Professor Garrett, for, your, for the book and for being with me today. Uh, John, such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. I'm always on the lookout for interesting guests. The more non-mainstream, the better. I'm looking for people who are telling the truth and have evidence to back it up. This is serious business, living in the empire run by the deep state, we need freedom of the airwaves and the internet, and we need truth-tellers with the courage to expose the lies of the criminals in high places. Thanks to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Cutsdown University Radio, Cutsdown, Pennsylvania. KFZR, Fraser Park, California. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KZ88, Kabul, Missouri, WLRI, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and KVOY, Norman, Oklahoma, as well as now and then a variety of Pacifica network stations. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Catch it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please share it on your social media and say nice things. The website is progressivespirit.net, Facebook, Twitter. I do all that too. I'm also the leader of a progressive congregation in Beaverton, Oregon, Southminster Presbyterian Southmin.com. O-R-G. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.